morning, everyone, and happy Father's Day. I'm Janelle Tompkins. So the last time I was up here was Advent Sunday, and I'm just glad to say there's no candle to light so that Pastor Brent doesn't have to come rescue me. (laughs) Uh, Today's reading is from chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. It is the same passage we read last week. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Thank you. Good morning. Happy Father's Day, dads. Thank you. Boy, Pastor Tom couldn't have been any more right. He couldn't have been any writer when he said that, uh, you know, we are here to experience something together and it's difficult to do that online. We understand that some uh, situations and some people have to be home and we are pleased and privileged to be able to have the technology today to be able to reach them in their living rooms and things. But uh, I'm, you know, I owe Gus a throat punch later on because he um, has my daughter sing a song before I get up and preach. So I'm sitting over there going, okay, how do I get rid of all these? So you got one coming, buddy. Um, I think he does that to me just to see how much of a puddle I can become. Uh, but there's an experience that we have together when we come together and Madison even prayed for it in her prayer of community where we come together and, and, and go through this life together through some things. And so even being here for Father's Day, you know, has conjured up all kinds of things for us. And, and uh, it's, it's an opportunity for us to share this journey and this experience. I share my life with men that I think are incredible fathers, really good fathers. I feel surrounded by them. I'm inspired by their example. I've seen men uh, not be so great at it in the, in, in their early days with raising children. And then because they've encountered Christ, they turn things around. 
around, they step up their game as it were, and they are influencing and reaching their kids now, even though they're adults and, and they feel like, as so many would say, oh, that ship has sailed, my time is done, and they don't give up. They, they're walking through what God has given them for grace and imparting that to their children and restoring those relationships. And so I'm proud of you dads. I'm proud of you men who have gone against the culture to um, walk through this very difficult role of being engaged with your children and uh, to be uh, there for them in your various ways. Don't think that you all have to look exactly like the, the book cover or what the video image is of what even we say from a place like the pulpit or something, what a godly uh, dad looks like, that the, the principles are there, but the execution of it's going to be a little bit different. Some of you are great at rolling around the floor and playing and reading the bedtime stories, and some of you aren't, but you're you're there faithfully in other ways, and you're you're seeking to be involved in the life of your kids and sometimes it's going to have different outcomes it's not a guaranteed result is it and we can't always do the one-to-one equation of just because you did everything as right as you could you were writer in it uh, that the guaranteed result is that they're going to grow up and flourish and be perfect you know uh, uh, citizens and and children of God and all these sorts of things we don't have control over those things what we have is the call to be faithful to the role that we've been given and I see men all in this room and I've encountered so many along the way that are doing that and doing it well and so I thank you for being countercultural that way thank you for uh, seeing that the Lord has a purpose and a plan for your role in our society but more importantly in your home and I'm going to encourage you to keep it up uh, it is worth it it is uh, important to give our children uh, something to brag about. They're not always going to brag about us, are they? They're going to mostly be embarrassed by, I think dads are embracing the new embarrassment role that, you know, all the dad jokes and the dad dances and everything. Now, because our kids have made such a big deal of it and made it go viral, now we're embracing it as our God-given right to embarrass our children. And uh, I say we keep honing that craft. What do you guys think? Let's keep it up, right? But kids love to brag about their da- their dad. I remember being little and and having those same debates with my kids. My dad can take your dad. My dad can beat up your dad. Like my dad in the middle of his work day, trying to raise a family and pay the bills, was going to be like, you know what? I think I can take him. Point him out to me. Let's see if we can settle this debate once and for all. Like he's thinking like that. But our, as kids, we were like, just dad, you got to do it to win the argument. I told him you could, you know. There's a story of kids that were comparing their dad's incomes. That's the more sophisticated way of saying my dad can beat up your dad. And one kid said, well, my dad writes down a few words on a piece of paper and they pay him a hundred bucks. He's a poet. Another kid says, well, my dad writes a few words down on a piece of paper. They call it a song and they pay him a thousand bucks. One kid says, well, my dad writes a few uh, words down on a piece of paper, preaches them in front of a bunch of people. They call it a sermon, and they need six to eight people to carry the money out when it's all said and done. (laughs) Where's Gavin? I'm just trying to give you some ammo to brag to you. There you go. So, Why this this focus uh, on Father's Day? Why... Would we look at this text in John chapter 5 when it probably would be a little bit more appropriate to just pull the whole sermon series and put it off to the side and, and speak to dads today? It's because I want us to see in the text 
how Jesus wrapped everything in terms of his uh, work, in terms of his reputation, in terms of his effectiveness. He wrapped it all into his relationship with his father. Now, we could say, humanly speaking, that Jesus was, re- was well raised. We could say that he was, he was raised by the best of the best, so that's why he turned out good. But, but it's different. Remember last week we talked about that Jesus' relationship with his father has some parallel applications for us, and it has some in- incredible benefits for us. But it isn't a one-to-one comparison. Everything that, that God the Father shares with God the Son is not something that you and I will be able to share with our own children or that we would have had with our own fathers. There's good parallel, there's good application, and there's certainly amazing benefits for us. But it's a little bit different. And Jesus in John chapter 5 is hinging all of his credibility and the mission on the fact that his relationship with his Father is absolutely unique. He's saying to the audience, people, you've never seen anything like this before. The reason why you're getting my motivations wrong, the reason why you're getting my works wrong, the reasons why you're getting my glory wrong is because you've misunderstood who I am in relation to the Father. John has already told us in perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible in John 3.16 that God gave his one and only Son. And we said it's not just because he had one, but because the one that he has is so unique from every other relationship that's ever existed. So this is, of course, a great offense to those that are in the audience, to those that think it's their job to uh, contain religion, the ones that will go great distances to evaluate whether or not some upstart prophet or somebody who claims to be the voice of God, they will go and send an entourage and say, you need to police this and see if this is with us or against us. It is, it is on us to be the gatekeepers of the faith is what the Jewish leaders thought at the time. And so the greatest offense to them is that somebody would come across and say the words that they knew meant, I am on equal footing, equal standing with the God you claim to protect. They say, they would say, we, we don't even, we're, we're his own children, we're his own sons, and we would never go so far as to make that kind of a boast. Remember we said last week that even as they're getting ready to write down the name of God, they wouldn't even use all the letters because it was so reverent. And if anybody was interrupting them, they would just be in lockdown mode. They wouldn't be able to respond any, even if it was a king walking in because they were writing the holy name of God. They believed with all of their being, it was their job to protect his fame and his glory, even though they had badly abused it, even though they had gotten it so wrong in its application, there was this motivation in it to preserve God's glory. And so Jesus comes along and says, I am one with the father. John chapter 5, verse 18, which is just one before the text that was read for us, tells us how they reacted. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And we said last week that we can't look at these groups of, of men as, as people that were just out looking for physical uh, altercations and, and that would be normally looking to murder somebody, but because they took their job so seriously or because they were so threatened by the encroachment of their authority, if he comes along and he's, and he's, and he's really going to have effect. It's amazing where our minds can go, isn't it? Once we feel threatened, once we start losing the thing that we value most. We might not have woke up that day as a murderer, but we might have ended that day as one. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he had healed the uh, the cripple on on the uh, on the on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So everything is hinging on this relationship. If Jesus is who he says he is, then all of his work for you and for me, all of the doings in our life that he does is for our good and can be trusted because he's not wrong about this. If Jesus was wrong about his relationship with the father, then everything else would have been empty and it would have been done in vain. So we only got to look at one of the gigantic claims that this section of scripture um, exposes for us that Jesus says with his own mouth. And we had seen that Jesus is the full expression of God's work. That Jesus isn't running around doing something different uh, unbeknownst to the Father or he hasn't been given a territory that the Father doesn't want to deal with or anything. But all that Jesus does is a direct missionary, a direct result, a direct sending of the purpose and the will of his Father. So in verse 19, as we heard, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and if you see it repetitively there, that verily, verily, or truly, truly, he's saying, this is what you need to bank everything on. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And we had said that it's not that he can't do anything on his own. It's just that it doesn't compute. In a, in a triune Godhead that is one in purpose and one in relationship, it's outside of what you and I might think of the realm of possibility that they wouldn't be working together or in concert, that they are one in purpose. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these he'll show him so that you may marvel. God is working through the son and with the son in the same exact purpose. But even though the purpose is the same, the responsibilities or the actions are going to be different. In other words, Jesus, God's son came to the cross and died on our behalf. While the Holy Spirit comes in and inhabits or indwells the believer and seals us to the day of redemption and illumines for us all truth and those sorts of things, there are the same God has distinct and separate uh, actions. But as Jesus indicates, a, a father-son relationship that is that is motivated, that is fueled, that is bonded by love. Remember we said last week, it's almost like when a father takes his son through the, through the uh, workshop and he's showing him all the projects and he's saying, this is what I plan to build here. So I'm going to show you how this tool works and we're going to figure it out together and all that stuff. In our human mind, that's how we see father-son relationship. And even we would look at that and say, that's a caring dad. That's an involved dad. That, what a great gift and a blessing that is for a son to be brought up in that environment. And Jesus uses that language on purpose so that we can see the care and the connection between the two of them. But again, because we're limited, we're, we're limited by time and space. We're limited by uh, being born into the authority of somebody else. But that isn't true of the triune Godhead. We can't wrap our heads around every aspect of this. So Jesus says, it, out, of a, out of an act of love, my father shows me all that he's about and all that he's doing. And we take comfort in that because sometimes we think Jesus is the good guy. God is the bad guy. You might think, well, I don't really think in those terms. But it's it's difficult for us to, to distinguish between like a God of the Old Testament mindset and the God of the New Testament mindset. 
And Jesus wants those hearers in particular who are steeped in Old, tra- Old Testament tradition and law and a lot more that they've added on top of it. Pastor Gary gave us several great examples of how silly it became because they thought they had to speak for God so much that they just kept getting more and more detailed thinking, well, this is what God wanted them to obey and do. So as they're, as they're working through this and piling those things on, Jesus is coming saying, all that the Father does in purpose, you're seeing as an expression in me. And we go, well, that's the God I can relate to. I, I've even seen his face on several movies and TV shows and everything like that. I, I can relate to that God, but the one who's shaking the mountains and sending the lightning bolts and opening up the ground, and I can't relate to him. Jesus is saying, same God, same purpose, same love. For you and for me. Jesus' big claim to start things off is I can only do what my Father does. There isn't any way He and I will be on opposite pages, is what He's saying. And this is mind blowing for this audience because again, they, they believe they're protecting God and the purity of that religion. And Jesus is coming and he's doing things like healing them on the wrong day. You're not supposed to do the things that God has said you can't do and then say you're equal with God. But Jesus is saying you're just missing, misunderstanding the relationship. I am God. I didn't make the Sabbath for me to obey. We gave it, Godhead, triune God, gave it to you, mankind, to take a break to enjoy the rest that you've earned from all of your labors, to think about the provision of God, to think about his blessings and his glory. You see, this is why it's tough for us sometimes to make it work on paper and say, how could Jesus be inconsistent with the law of the Sabbath? And Because he's God. He's consistent with his law, but he doesn't answer to it. All of this was even a part that even the Hebrew could wrap their head around because they knew that God himself didn't take a break from everything on the Sabbath. They knew that the way creation laid out, that six days happen, all these activities, and that the scriptures specifically said he rested from his creation and he took that Sabbath, leaving an example and a command for us to follow. But they would say, it's not like he just hangs it up and leaves the earth in the wake and just says, well, you know, whatever, they're going to have to fend for themselves today because I am checking out. That's not how the father did it. And so even in Hebrew doctrine, they realize that God must have been active through all of this. And so Jesus says, as the father even works on a day like today, so do I. So if I see somebody who needs to be raised up, needs to be healed, I'm just going to point to them and say, be healed. I didn't look at the calendar. Well, he kind of did to make this point. But he's not beholden to the calendar like they were. So Jesus' big statement is, I can only do what my father does let's look at another giant claim let's look at a couple of passages that were read for us here a couple of verses in in uh in separation verse 21 says for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will verse 24 truly truly there's the repetitive there bank on this i say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life He's not come into judgment, but has passed. There's one of the most helpful, most hopeful phrases in this whole passage, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, 
I say to you, Jesus is saying, are you listening? Don't miss this message. I'm saying it again and again in various ways and in, in various applications for you to grasp. I am saying it to you. Bank on it. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is a profound statement that they're hearing now because the, the Old Testament minded Jew was willing to ascribe life to God the Father. They appealed to him for life. They would say, uh, specifically in Deuteronomy, Lord, open the skies, send the rain so that our crops can grow so that we can be flourished and replenished. They would pray to him to open the woman's womb in Genesis 30. They would say, only you can can instigate that life. We know that it comes from you. And even in the vision of the valley of dry bones, it's clear from Ezekiel 37 that they saw that God could raise these bones to life, that in him was life. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Me too. Only God can grant life. And so again, the the offense just keeps getting heavier and deeper every time he opens his mouth. You're saying what? Now you're saying, first you said you knew all of his his purpose. You knew what he was doing on this earth, like you're in in the wood shop with him, learning all the tools and learning all that. You claim that. Now you're saying the same life that we beg him for, that we appeal to him, that we ascribe to him. You're saying you've got it in you. It's not that they were thinking nobody could could grant life from time to time. Their own prophets would do so. Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, is moved by a woman's loss of her child, her son. And she begs the prophet, please go and raise him up. And Elijah uh, demonstrates a posture that's appropriate for one who is not life in himself. He comes as an instrument before the Lord. He lays himself over the child's body and he cries out to the heavens and says, God, if it be your will, you grant this child life. And so work through me as a vessel. There's this whole posture of I'm just a tool to be used here. And of course, the Lord hears that prayer and and works through the prophet and the child's life is raised. So that's that's a description of how life can channel through the instrument of God. Jesus skips the middleman. Jesus says, live. He's going to say to it later, he's going to say, Lazarus, get out of that tomb. He says to the man laying on the bed, just get up and walk. Let's get this over with. He's not posturing before the Lord God. If you would, please hear the, the cry of your servant. Please come through. He's saying, because I am God, I look at the need. I see the, the opportunity. I have the power to do what I want to do. And I know I'm doing it in league step with my father because we serve the same purpose. It's more than borrowed power. And this life that he has within himself, this is really important for us. This is why I said that phrase about that he passed from death to life is so hopeful to us. Because this is more than physical life. You ever thought to yourself, perhaps you have, boy, I don't know how long I want to live. You know, you hear about some people celebrating extremely old birthdays and we're kind of like, wow, that's great. That's congratulate. That's amazing. And then you kind of think about, I don't know if I'd want to do that. Life's kind of hard. You think about somebody who's, you know, reached a hundred years or something like that. And you go, they've seen a lot. 
and we feel tired for them and we wonder. But at the same time, there's this blessing and there's this motivation where we say life is good. And, and the longer it can go, isn't it strange? Even the, we that are, 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 are anchored in our belief that eternal life awaits us, that a home in heaven and rest, we still do what we can to hang on to this life, don't we? I think that's born within us because life is good. But you see, we look at this and we go, I don't know how much longer I would do that. Just being granted more days, more years, whatever, isn't necessarily a blessing, is it? When we're living in the context of a sin-broken world, we say, I don't know if just eternity is the answer. You'd be right to question that. Because the life that the scriptures are talking about is, we get this word, we've, I've said it before, it's Zoe, we hear the, the beautiful name Zoe, and we need to start thinking about what kind of life has God given me? Because Zoe is, is a quality of life, isn't just, isn't just the arrival of, of a pulse, or health, or a long, a length of days, or anything. Zoe is a quality of life, and what, what the scriptures just told us is that, that those who have humbled themselves before him, those who have heard his voice, and received it, we aren't walking into judgment, but we have passed from death to life. What's our indication here? Your eternal life began the moment you surrendered your heart to the Lord. We think about it's going to kick in. The clock's going to start, even though it's eternity. There won't be a clock. It's going to start when I close my eyes, draw my last breath. But what Jesus is saying is that those of you that have already heard the voice of the Lord and responded to that, your eternal life has already begun. That that quality, that arrival is already taking place. Jesus says, that's the power that I possess in and of myself. Now, it'd be great to be able to take some more time here and look at some of the things that Jesus is saying about these resurrections that are are clearly indicated to us here. But for now, let's just look at some of the distinctions because there's great doctrine in here. And some of the theology that needs to be studied is around things like the, the Bema seat judgment or the great white throne judgment. There are things that you and I need to be aware of as we anticipate what does our future look like? What is all of this moving us towards? And so let's just identify some of those things that we see. We see that there's a resurrection for the believing sinner who's been rescued. So they're raised into eternal life. We just saw that in verse 24. They've passed from death to life. There's this, there's this inner resurrection that those of us that are in Christ have already experienced. There is the resurrection of Jesus himself that's inferred here because without him rising from the dead, we don't have any hope of any of this being true. It says, so he, in verse 26, the father has granted life in himself, the son. That only comes as the process of him being, or being proven, I should say, by him raising from the dead after he was crucified. Like the prophet, like you and I, our lives are derived. We've inherited life from another source. But Jesus is the original life. Speaking of his life in John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. We also see in here a future resurrection of life. In verses 28 and 29, those in tombs will hear his voice. 
some to the resurrection of life. That's our Bema seat judgment. Good works as proof of our salvation. Don't read into this text and say, see, I knew if we looked hard enough, we could see that if I'm a good enough person, I make it into heaven. That would contradict too many other portions of scripture that give us clarity on Jesus' words here, where Jesus is easily saying here that because our works should follow our new hearts in Christ, that because we are rescued and born again and saved and renewed, that the rest of our lives will start to match that. And when we raise again before him and we're at that seat of judgment, the works will just be plentiful and be obvious. Let me just take a second here and kind of tap into where most of our hearts and heads go when we hear this. Whenever I think of this beam of seat judgment, uh, there's a theology part of me that comes rushing in and says, I don't have to worry about that. Because of the promises in Christ, because of the fact that my salvation rests solely on his work and not on mine, I'm good. So when somebody starts dangling out, you know, you're going to be judged one day. I don't have to sit there and have my knees knock and go, oh, no, what's going to happen? There's a theological rush that comes out of my mouth that I just come to my own defense. And I say, I don't have to worry about that because I've been taken care of. It's all on him. But then there's this little part of me. When I start seeing about how Jesus says we're going to separate the sheep from the goats and that they're going to march towards a judgment where some will be caught off guard. Some will be kind of like, I thought I was in. I thought I was, I thought I was one of you. I thought I did the things that proved it and everything. And Jesus says, depart from me, you wicked ones. I never knew you. Now, I believe the theology I just said before. I believe that we can make that case very clearly from scripture that our salvation is secure and that when you and I mess up along the way, it isn't how it was never about us being able to earn it. So it's never going to be about us trying to keep it. I believe that, but there's this kind of humbling fear that I have because I also know in first John it says, don't deceive yourself. And I go, Hmm. So here's where I've come at. This This is just my own personal application. There are some theologians in the room. that are probably going to go. I wouldn't have preached that, but here's where I come at for my personal application with this. There's a little bit of motivation that I Brent small need. That's a little bit of a threat. That says you better make sure you're walking the straight and narrow. You better make sure you're not taking this for granted. You better make sure that just because you can spout the theology doesn't mean that you're faithfully walking in the call of the Lord. And I, I don't know if it's about whether or not I like it or not, but I have what I believe might be a healthy fear of the fact that I don't know the end of all things. And it would be better for me not to act like I don't have to worry about it, that I don't have to work towards it or anything like that. It'd be better for me as I'm learning to rest in his grace. To also not trust my own actions and my own efforts and my own quote-unquote failing belief day in and day out. So is it possible that while I rest on the promise of God, while I, while I embrace the teaching of the scriptures, that it is all about him, that I am secure in him, that there's this kind of thing I try not to talk myself out of that says, but you better... You kind of better work towards some of this. You better make sure that you're, you're, you're earning your place. And I don't mean that because I'm trying to get my salvation screwed up. But because I feel like the danger in that is if I take his grace for granted, I start trampling on it. And Paul warned us, don't ever do that. Don't ever take it for granted so that you start to say, you know, I can put my feet up. I can relax because it's all in grace. It's all in him. I'm going to mess this up because I didn't rehearse this in my mind before, but I've heard a statement a lot, a lot over the years, something along the lines of, 
Um, uh, pray as though it all depends on God. Work like it all depends on you. I, I don't know how much I can back all of that up with Scripture, but that's sort of the application I think I'm trying to explain here. Jesus' giant claim is, I have the power to give life. Why? Because in him is life. And we're seeing it in these resurrections that are listed here, is that life is available, life is happening, but some will also raise to judgment. And so he's even in his grace giving the warning that you don't walk into this whole process thinking, well, okay, it's all up to him, or I've got my religion. He says, you've got to be warned here that you may wake up on the other side of this facing judgment. I think that should have freaked out his hearers just a little bit. The ones who are saying, shut your mouth, you don't speak for our father, is the one that says, oh, by the way, he gave me the keys to judgment. It's our next claim he makes here. And that should cause some alarm for them. That should That should say, well, we should be really careful about who we're picking on here. You ever been in one of those situations where you're, you're kind of absolutely sure you're right until somebody starts doing or saying something that makes you just go, I'm not really sure if this is true or not. You can't tell me that they're watching Jesus be so effective with his healing, that they're seeing him be so wise with the words coming out of his mouth, that he's putting them in corners and he's trapping them with their own logic, that they're not sitting there thinking, maybe there's something to this guy. But because it's part of our narrative, because we've invested our whole life into this religion thing and everything, we got to press on. We just got to persecute him. So even when he says, I've been given, let's look at verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That should be freaking them out a little bit, especially the doubters are not sure they're on the right side of this. Verse 27, he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. I love this phrase. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are here, uh, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. But don't freak out about that. Treat that like it's normal. Jesus is like, don't marvel. Don't, don't panic that I'm the judge. And don't panic that the dead are going to come out of their tombs and walk in the streets. Don't worry about that. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Judgment is granted by the Father. Remember, because we don't have two different gods going on. We don't have Old Testament God and New Testament God. But judgment's going to happen. Who In whose hands is judgment best executed? Jesus is saying it's in mine. Why? Because I'm the son of man. I'm toggling both relationships. I'm perfect God and I'm also perfect man. Who better to represent whether or not we come short than the one who was perfect? So it's almost like, again, I'm sorry, these are crude human terms, but it's almost like you can imagine the conversation of God the Father saying, you're going to be the one to judge, not because I could care less, but because you're more rightly fitted for it because you hung on their cross. You see, a personal God, one that we can see and hear his voice and recognize, a personal God is a false religion killer. 
This is what these, these leaders are facing is what they thought of God as being demonstrated in somebody that they're not sure how to take and how to, how to fight against. You and I, we encounter Jesus and we see him in the depiction of the, the shows and the movies or we study him in his word and we hear his truth. We see the compassion and love in his voice, but at times we see the firmness in his judgment and we go, oh, it's just really hard to peg God, isn't it? He comes at it from so many different angles. He's, he's hard for us to contain. That's why we need his word. But the more we see the personal expression of God, the more that we see him in the face of Jesus, the harder it is for us to make up our own thing, to make up our own rules, to make up our own uh, authority. Jesus, as the representation of the one true God, exposes the inconsistency of all those additional rules that the Jewish leaders were heaping on, the same kind of things you and I do. We fashion religion, the one that fits us, the one that we think we can pretty much nail. Don't we define things based on what we feel like we can already meet the bar? When we encounter Jesus, why we're taking a slow approach to studying about him in the book of John is the more we encounter him, the more he messes with our construct. And we go, I don't really know if I can peg God. I need to know more about him instead of me trying to reduce him to something I can comprehend and understand. This is the same dismissal that we give Jesus today. We see him as the one who's carrying a pushover grace where God the Father is the one you don't push around. Jesus, he can take it though. He's the kind one. He's the one that gives you the shirt off his back. The other one's the one that makes the ground shake and open up and swallow us whole. The same God, the same relationship, father, son, the same purpose is showing the same grace and love towards us and wants to be known by us. And therefore, he's made himself plain and visible in the face of Jesus. The more we see how kind Jesus is and compassionate and grace-filled and merciful, but fail to see his lordship, all judgment's been given to him, we're going to miss a few things because the lordship of Jesus carries an inherent threat to our autonomy. But it's his grace that frees us from the burden of our self-slavery. Jesus is the perfect balance of these things for us. Remember we said that John was written. He tells us in chapter 20 that John was written so that you and I would believe in the name of the son of Jesus Christ. And in that believing, we would have eternal life. We would have Zoe now that we would have passed from death to life, that John has written these things that would move us towards a belief in who Jesus is. So why does he include all of this? Not just because it happened, but he says, I'm, I'm putting it in the places it is so that it will further you along in your belief of him. Is it possible that you and I have reduced Jesus to something that we can make him to be, that, that we've removed the authority that comes with him, the, the judgment side of Jesus as well? Even though he says, that isn't my main goal, I didn't come here just to condemn people, that condemnation was already there, I came to, see, to seek and to save that which was lost. Is it possible that we've misplaced who Jesus is, that we've removed his relationship from the Father and we've separated their two purposes when in fact they're one? Is it possible that we have continued to reduce something that we can manage into our own fashioned religion as opposed to following in the footsteps of Christ as one of his disciples? Jesus is the expression of God's love. He's the expression of the Father's work and authority. 
And we take tremendous comfort and security in that as we see him as that benevolent authority. He does all that he does in our lives. You see, so much of what we do in processing our own thoughts and emotions and things is what we can accept. And when we learn to accept, kind of a human term here, but when we learn to accept Jesus as both benevolent, grace-filled, but authoritative, we'll start to see that all that he does is, as Gus had even prayed earlier, is that all that he does is for his glory, but also for our benefit. The unity of the Godhead remind us that we were created for their pleasure and our benefit. We are the object of God's love. They were fine without us. I say they, the God was fine without us. But he created us to show that he's love. And all of God's dealings with us are to express his care for us. Well, I sought to give fathers a gift of a shorter sermon. I failed. I was conflicted because I'm a dad too, and I wanted the right to be heard longer. So I don't know whoever has the microphone wins, I guess. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for giving us your word. And thank you, Lord, for relating or relaying your truth in the context that we can understand. There's so much we know, Lord, in the Trinity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we can't comprehend, we can't fully explain, and yet we know that we're the direct beneficiaries of it, that we're the recipients of your love. And I know, Lord, that we often complain, like like all of us do about what our dads do or don't do for us. We complain about the way our circumstances play out, or we focus on the resources that we lack instead of the ones that we have. So, Lord, help us to comprehend the truth that in you is everything that we need for life and godliness. And that you desire to know us like a good father would. That you desire to be involved in the every thread and and fiber of our being. But we so often distance ourselves from you because we misunderstand the relationship. We, We doubt your motives. Or we're just inconvenienced by having to answer to an authority in our life. Break us of that, Lord. Do what a good father would do and love us despite ourselves. Bring us back to you. In your name we pray. Amen.